This is the, uh, as I already prayed, it's the mentor treat. And fortunately, uh, that means we, we have a treat. Um, every <laughs> mentor treat, we have a pastor swap between our sister church in Lusby and our church here. So, Walt, is it your place, right? We'll yes. Make sure, you got yes. coverage there. So, Walt's over there <clears throat> preaching this morning. And Rich Good, come on up, Rich, who has uh, been serving at Harvest Fellowship for the last eight and a half years and been uh, very engaged in a number of activities we've done here at the church and is a good friend. Is going to share God's word with us, and as I mentioned, very tightly tied to the passages and the, and the focus that Walt has been giving. So we'll see another perspective, a godly perspective, but another perspective on how we can look at the world uh, through God's eyes. Thank you, Rich. Thanks, Doug. That is the plan—a a godly perspective. That, that thats my goal. I hope that happens. So, but I guess I'll leave it up to you all to decide that too. But uh, it is a pleasure to be here. It's been actually—we didn't do the swap last year because I was the speaker at the men's retreat last year. So I was previously engaged. but uh, So it's been a while. Um, Walt reminded me, I was up there with the guys, and he reminded me that uh, he hasn't been to Harvest since we did our renovation and things, and so I'm excited that he's over there and, and checking things out and be able to, and it's a blessing for him to be here. I, you know, I know guest speakers are supposed to come and do two things. They're supposed to compliment you all and make you laugh when you start, and um, I'm going to compliment you, but not because I'm supposed to. And I'm not going to just tell a story to make you laugh because I've got too much to talk about this morning. But um, I do love this church. And uh, every time, it's a delight for me to come over here um, and be involved and see what you're doing. And, and I think the Lord is doing some, just some wonderful things through you all. And I commend you and, and uh, encourage you to keep pressing on. Um, and I think uh, there's some great things happening here. And uh, and I, I, I love coming over here. I love the people here. I love uh, hanging out with you and, and uh, seeing what the Lord is doing. And so, uh, so that's exciting and, and encouraging. Um, I realized as I was, uh, this week we celebrated, well, we didn't celebrate, we, we actually passed our 19th anniversary just this week at Harvest. And what that means is, is if you remember planting our church, then you're really old. And, uh, <laughs> and so am I. Um, I. It struck me. I've been there eight and a half years, and I thought, wow. That's amazing. I don't look the same as I did when I first came, and uh, it's kind of sad, but uh, that's the reality. So anyway, um, we are going to look at, at a, a topic that you all are looking at specifically. We're going to look at the big picture. When, when Walt and I were talking about what, to, what I should preach on and what he should preach on, um, I shared the sermon, knowing that he's touch, touching on tough issues, tough topics, uh, I told him that I had preached this about a year ago at Harvest, and uh, because it was just the Lord had laid it on my heart, uh, and he said, well, that fit perfectly. I'm going to give you kind of the big picture framework of how to think biblically of, of all these issues, and, and Walt is giving you the specifics, how to think specific, biblically, specifically about tough topics, and so it'll, it'll, Lord willing, fit very well, and you can hopefully see that, how Walt is touching on some of these things, and it'll meld well together. If you, have, if you have your Bibles, please open up to uh, Romans 12, 2, and uh, you can put your, your finger on Ephesians 4. Uh, Romans 12, 2, a, a well-known but short verse. Uh, this, is, this is God's word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then Ephesians 4 17 through 25. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about him, heard about him, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Can you please pray with me? Father God, I do thank you for this blessing to be with these brothers and sisters. Uh, every time is a joy for me. And, uh, and I ask, Father, this would be a blessing for them, that you would use my words, your words, uh, through me, I pray, uh, to encourage them, to strengthen them, Lord, to glorify yourself and to further your cause here in this place. And so guide us, Lord, may we all submit our hearts and our minds and our wills to you and now speak to us. And may we receive it as as food to, to a craving and hungry soul, as water to someone who's, who's vastly thirsty. And may we drink it down, and may you have your way with us, and may it find bear, bear fruit in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The reason that I preached on this uh, about a year ago at, at Harvest because I was struck after reading a series of articles in the newspaper and, and listening to things going on in our culture, I was struck that, that I think we as Christians, we as, as the Christian church, at least in America, have lost the ability to think biblically. We don't know how to think biblically about life, even what it means necessary to think biblically beyond, well, we think this is right and we think that is wrong. Uh, and... and if we don't know how to think biblically, then we don't know how to properly address all that's coming and hitting us these days. Things are changing so rapidly. I don't have to tell you this. You know, things that are going on today that, that the majority of the culture approves of would have been unthinkable a couple generations ago. We know that. And we're being bombarded by thoughts all the time. And, and the question is, how do we analyze them? How do we interpret them? What do we do with them? How do we know what to think about all these things. And if we don't think biblically, we're either left with simply being entrenched in tradition because we don't like change, change bothers us, or we base our opinions about things, and they simply are our opinions, based on feelings or emotions, I like this, I don't like that, or we are simply carried away by the prevalent thoughts and values and ideas and attitudes of our day. See, not only are things changing so rapidly that we're bombarded by information all the time, we're also faced with the reality that as Christians, there's no longer a Judeo-Christian majority in the mainstream. No longer are there Judeo-Christian values and ideas in the mainstream. A few generations ago, we didn't need to think about thinking Christianly or biblically because most of the people around us had the same ideas about things that we did at least in the majority. But now, no longer do people think biblically about things. Our values and our convictions are in the margins now. In fact, many look at us as the immoral ones because of the ideas that we, and the, the, the doctrines and the ideas that we hold. Things have flipped upside down. And again, unless we are intentional about it, we'll get swept away in the predominant attitudes and ideas of our age. And therefore, we must have developed the ability to think biblically about it all. 
And it really is, it's an alarm, it's happening at an alarming rate, the fact that Christians are really getting swept up in the, the just contemporary attitudes and values of our day. Barna Research, you may be familiar with them, they're a Christian research and polling organization. They found that a few years ago, only 4% of Americans had a biblical perspective on life at all. I mean, that may not surprise us that much, but only 9% of those claiming to be evangelical, claiming to be born-again believers, think biblically about life in the world. They said this, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. Now, that's a problem, of course, but when we take these passages that I looked at and into consideration, they make it very clear that there's a right way and a wrong way to think about life. Paul, in both of those passages, in Romans and Ephesians 4, tells us explicitly that as Christians, we are not to think the way the world does. Do not be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What he's saying there is there's something about the way that we think about the world that that is core, that is key. We are not to think the way the world does. What he's saying is being a Christian is more than simply having my sins forgiven and therefore being saved and going to heaven. It's not less than that. That's the foundation. That's, that's key. But it's more than that. It goes beyond that. It's about living out our faith here and now while we're left on this earth. And living it out is not simply just, we do this, we don't do that. As long as I stick with the morals and I'm okay. It's, it's about thinking properly about all of life. Because how we, deter, we, how we think, what we believe, determines how we act. How we view life, the beliefs and the core beliefs that we have in our hearts and our minds determines how you respond to all that you experience, good and bad. This passage in Ephesians, Paul makes that clear. He says, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's saying... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life. The way that they think about the world alienates them from God. The way that they think about the world is futile. And we must not live that way. Therefore, we must actively, intentionally think differently about the world. Be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. Be put away falsehood, speaking the truth to each other. How you walk and live is determined by how you understand life. And as one article I read said this, here's the big problem. Non-biblical ideas don't just sit in a book somewhere waiting for people to examine them. They bombard us constantly from television, film, music, newspapers, magazines, books, and academia. And because because we live in a selfish, fallen world, these ideas seductively appeal to the desires of our flesh, even as Christians. And we often end up incorporating them in our personal worldview. And sadly, we do this without even knowing about it. And so it is vitally important that we develop a way of understanding and seeing life through the biblical grid. What we're talking about simply is developing and living out a, a biblically consistent worldview. Now, many of you probably are familiar with that word, worldview. What do we mean by that? The worldview is the framework through which you understand and interpret everything that happens around you, all the experiences you have, everything that you take in from this world. It's any ideology, philosophy, or belief system that guides us in life. It can be conscious or subconscious, but everyone has a worldview. It's what enables us to make sense of this world, to, to try to connect the dots in some way. 
A personal worldview is a combination of all you believe to be true. What you believe becomes the driving force behind every emotion, every decision, and every action. So we need to see, realize this, that therefore it affects your response to every area of life, from philosophy to science to theology to anthropology to economics, law, politics, art, social order, everything. We can think about a worldview like a map. It guides you to your destination. And you know that if the map is not, a, is not accurate to reality, you will make wrong turns. You will make wrong decisions. You will not end up where you want to go. So having an accurate map, an accurate worldview, is critical to getting to the place where we are called to be. So what does it look like? Well, first of all, I want to talk about worldviews in general. All worldviews need answer, must answer five key questions about life. These are foundational questions that guide your attitudes and decisions about life. First, origin. Where did we come from? Second, purpose. Why are we here? What is the purpose for us being here at all? Thirdly, what's problem? What is the problem in the world, why do bad things happen to us? Why do I do bad things? Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And virtually everyone recognizes that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So how do we answer that? And then fourthly, the solution. What is the solution to the problem? And then finally, destiny. Where are we going? What's after this? What's our ultimate end as humans? What happens when we die? See, all worldviews answer these questions but the issue is not simply to pick a worldview that, whose ideas and answer to these questions we like, that feel comfortable to us, that are appealing to us and fit our desires. Because every worldview must pass two tests to be valid, to be worth considering and, and, and embodying. They must be thinkable and they must be livable. Two tests. And what do I mean by that? First, they must be thinkable. They must be logically consistent within themselves. They they cannot be self-contradictory. For example, if I say I believe that God is sovereign, but I also say that I believe man is the master of his own fate, those are two contradictory truths, and I can't live both of those consistently. That worldview is not valid. It doesn't make sense. And that follows into the next test. It must be livable. Not only does it need to be internally consistent within itself, it must match reality such that I can live it out consistently in real life. Does it fit with what is really there, how we experience life? And if it can't pass these tests, it's not a valid worldview. It may be nice in theory, but it's ultimately worthless. And the vast majority of worldviews that are propagated out there, that are thrown at us, demanding to be heard, demanding to be believed, fail in at least one of these two tests. And I want to give you an example. A very prominent one, uh, particularly, I guess, if you're a scientist or an engineer, you probably come across a lot of secular humanists. Uh, they can be the other word for it, materialism, uh, naturalism, which simply believe that all that is is what you can see, taste, and touch, and hear with your senses. The physical world is all that there is. Now, how would they answer these five questions? First, origin. Where do we come from? Simply from the Big Bang and evolution, right? The Big Bang, everything was created, and, and over billions of years, we popped out of the ooze, and here we are on a Sunday morning at Cornerstone. What do you know? What are the chances of that happening? The purpose. Why are we here? Well, ultimately, if we just kind of evolved through time and chance, there really is no overarching transcendent purpose. 
As Peter, Peter Singer, a philosopher, and Helga Kuntz said in their book, Bioethics and Anthology, since Darwin, we know that we do not exist for any purpose. Any purpose that we might create for ourselves in that worldview is artificial because there is no real overarching purpose. We just ended up here. What is the problem? Well, they would say all problems are physical. It's just a manifestation of some physical issue. They're a mechanical issue with, with our bodies since we're simply machines or sickness. Or our problem or is my problem is you if you keep me from fulfilling my potential. Limiting my freedom, keeping me from doing what I want to do. Or they may say ignorance is the problem. So what's the solution? Well, if the problem is physical, it's medication. If it's other people holding me down, it's seeking, it's throwing off any hindrances. It's seeking meaning wherever I can find it artificially to keep me going. If it's ignorance, it's education. And then destiny, where are we going? Well, the answer is nowhere. We simply become food for worms. There is no transcendent. So in totality, this worldview, as you can see, is really quite bleak and and depressing, and it fails the second test. Now, it might be consistent within itself, but it's not livable. Nobody can live that way consistently throughout their life. Why? Because we all are built in with a desire for significance, a desire for meaning. So nobody can live consistently with a life that says there is no meaning. That's... That would be total despair. So everybody ends up creating some, if they believe this, they still end up creating some kind of artificial meaning because nobody can live this way consistently. We all have a longing for meaning and purpose. It's the same thing with relativism. You know relativism. Relativism says that there are no absolutes in this world. Everybody's ideas and and values uh, are just as valid as anybody else's. Nobody has the right to tell me what's right or wrong, and I can't tell you what's right or wrong. And goodness, that, that... that worldview is incredibly appealing in our modern minds and psyches because we, we love autonomy. We love, being the mass, we love deciding for ourselves what's right or wrong. We, we, it doesn't require anything from me. I can do anything I want to do, and, and you can't tell me that I'm wrong or right. There's no guilt. However, you can't live that way. No one lives like a relativist consistently. They may want to live it for themselves, doing what they want to do, but the minute somebody else starts living as a relativist, they get ticked off because it affects them. I give me an example, an illustration. If somebody that really claims to be a relativist, go up and punch them in the nose. What's their response going to be? Why did you do that? You say, well, you know, you really ticked me off, and I just, I, it was fulfilling for me. And they're going to say, you can't do that. You say, well, wait a minute, you... For me, that was my truth. It, it was fulfilling. So you have no right to tell me it was wrong. See, nobody lives that way consistently. We all inherently know the difference between helping somebody and hurting somebody, the difference between stealing something from somebody or giving something to somebody. We know that. And in reality, there's, if, if somebody were really a consistent relativist, nobody would hire them and you wouldn't want to be in a significant relationship with them because you wouldn't be able to trust this person. So in reality, there's only one worldview that sufficiently answers the questions, these five questions I posed up there, and, and, and passes both tests, and that's a biblical worldview. The only world that truly expresses life accurately, consistently as we experience it. One that is based on unchanging truths of God's word. Because it's based on God's revealed truth, 
What the Bible has to say about God, about us, and about reality, about the world, adheres to reality and is therefore consistently livable. Because it's accurately, because it accurately describes reality in the Bible, we find a, in the Bible a book that truly understands us and all our experiences, emotions, challenges, and joys. It presents a true story about God, about us, and the world such that I can find my place in it, I can find myself in it, and it makes sense of all that we experience. When we fail to live out that consistently biblical worldview, when you answer those five questions wrongly, not only does your view of reality become distorted, you inevitably make wrong decisions, creating negative consequences. Keeping with the map metaphor I used earlier, not only do you get lost, the wheels start coming off of the car, things start falling apart. We see that in our culture currently, it's a drift. And things are getting messier and messier the further we move, the, the farther and farther we move away from the biblical core. So we must consistently and intentionally strive to live a consistent biblical worldview. But what is that? See, the beauty of it is, is that you don't need to, to know everything about the Bible. You don't have to have read the Bible from cover to cover to, to live out and understand a biblical worldview. Now, that does not mean that you shouldn't be reading your Bible. If you go to, to Pastor Walt and say, hey, Rich said I don't have to read my Bible anymore. I just have to know these four truths. I'm going to say, no, I didn't say that. Okay? I'm going to get in trouble with Presbytery. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. But the beauty of this is, is you need to know that the overarching story of Scripture and everything else in the, in, in that we read in there fits into that somewhere. There's four chapters to this story. Creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. Four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification. First, I want to look at, at creation. Now, this... We find this in the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And it tells important truths about us, about God, and about, about God and about us as humans. And just very quickly, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. A little bit later on, then God said, let us make man in our image after, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds and the heavens and the, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion basically over all things. And God saw everything that he'd made and behold, it was very good. This tells us, again, some very important truths about it, God and about us. First, about God. There is an omnipotent God who speaks and acts. He speaks and acts. In speaking, he reveals himself. And in acting, he creates. So he's a God who reveals himself, who wants to have a relationship with us. And he's a God who creates, but he doesn't just create like an artist where he takes something that exists already and fashions something new and creative out of it. No, he takes things out of nothing and makes all that there is, everything that there is, out of nothing, which shows his power, his omnipotence, that he can do anything. He has no limits. It also tells us that he is separate from his creation, not a part of it. And all that he created was good. He is a good and a generous God because he creates good things. And as such, when I'm stepping back and saying he said, this is very good, things are just the way they were supposed to be. 
tells us that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. There was nothing to hide from each other or from God. They were in perfect relationship with God and with each other. The story in Genesis 1 and 2 tells us something about ourselves as well. It tells us that we, as humans, are created in the image of God, something I know that you know, but I want to delve a little bit what that means. It means that we share some God-like characteristics. Now, it's not exactly clear all that that means, but what is clear is that we are not reducible to mere matter, a result of time and chance. We're not merely complex machines. We are far, far more than that. It tells us that we are unique from the rest of creation. Because we are created in the image of God, we are unique. We are a part of creation, but we are separate from the rest of creation based on the fact that we and we alone are created in His image. We are image bearers. And therefore, it also means that we are created with dignity, with value, and with purpose. As the high point of God's creation, humans are created with inherent dignity and value. A dignity and value that nothing, on earth, nothing else on earth has. This means that all of life is precious. No matter where it is, no matter how young or how old it is, no matter how strong or frail or disabled it is. Thus, taking human life is a serious matter, whether it's in the womb or in law enforcement or in prison or on the battlefield. And it must never be done out of convenience or cost or anger. Another implication that we were created with a purpose given to us by God himself as his representatives on earth. We are to reflect God in all that we do. We are to care for his creation as stewards of it. What this means is that, that work is a part of God's created design. Work, as it originally was given, is a good thing. We all dream about the time when we can retire, but originally work is a good thing. We're inherently given the, the, the desire to work. It's a good thing, whether paid or unpaid. And losing, losing this understanding of being created in the image of God has serious consequences, where it becomes difficult to argue, really, to argue convincingly for the inherent value of human life if we lose the special creation of humans. Increasingly, we see people arguing for the value of, of humans being based on productivity or ability or simply outward appearance. The beautiful people are the most valuable, those that are most productive, those that are most able. We see this increasingly around the world with euthanasia laws, where basically if it costs too much to keep somebody alive, we might as well put them to death. If you lost your value as a productive member of society, it's better to do away with you. Philosopher Peter Singer uh, is, a, is a proponent of this. And he says this, there will surely be some non-human animals whose lives, by any standard, are more valuable to lives of, than the lives of some humans. Some animals will have greater capacity for meaningful relationships with, other, with, with others than some humans. So he says, it's all about productivity, all about your ability to relate. Nothing inherently value. And as shocking and as disturbing as his ideas may be, you've got to give him credit for being consistent, at least. <laughs> he is. So we have creation, and then we have the fall. And I know I've got to fly through this, and I'm sorry. I won't be able to talk about some implications here. Genesis 3, the next part of the story, and we don't have time to look at it, and I encourage you to look over that whole chapter. It tells us that everything is broken. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be. Everything was created good, but something drastic happened, and now nothing is the way it's supposed to be. When Adam and Eve decided to go their own way, to not trust God, to decide for themselves what is right and wrong, 
the results are evident immediately. Every relationship that they have is broken now. They hide from God. They hide from each other. Romans 8 even tells us that all of creation even is impacted by the fall. Nothing is untouched by the effects of sin. Every human relationship has been broken by it. We have a ruptured relationship with our Creator. No longer, instead of familiarity, there's now alienation. Instead of walking with Him as Adam and Eve did in the garden, humans by nature are running from Him. There's a ruptured relationship with our community. Instead of openness and honesty and love, human relationships are marked by insecurity, manipulation, selfishness, and added to the desire for companionship is the desire to dominate and blame shift. Remember when Adam, when God confronted Adam to get a confession out of him and said, where are you and what happened, basically? Adam said, "Uh, it's her. She gave it to me. In fact, he didn't just stop there. He said, the woman you created gave it to me. So not only is it Eve's fault, but it's actually your fault as well, God, because you made her, and she's the one, so you you, you messed up. Uh, We have this innate desire to blame shift, to avoid exposure and guilt by shifting blame and justifying ourselves. And then we also have a ruptured relationship in and of ourselves, psychologically. We're filled with insecurity, with self-doubt, with fear, with guilt and shame. A fear of exposure replaces openness before God and others, and we wallow in self-absorption. And then finally, a ruptured relationship with our world. It's now thorns and thistles and the sweat of the brow. Work is now work. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Ugh. It's full of tension and difficulty and hindrances. And again, nothing has been untouched. And we experience now the result, the, the, the twin realities of sin and sickness. Our bodies with the rest of, rest of creation are subject to decay. Our bodies run down. Our hearts are full of wrong and damaging desires. We naturally want to do what's not best for us and for others. We overeat. We overwork. We overplay. We obsess. We worry. We lust. We fantasize. We experience rage. Good things get distorted and twisted. We are now a paradoxical being full of great dignity and yet full of great depravity at the same time. That's why humans are capable of incredible acts of beauty and creativity and kindness and charity, while at the same time also capable, the same people, capable of great acts of ugliness and selfishness and hate and destruction and evil. If we lose an understanding of the fall, we are all simply victims of our sickness and need medicine for our sickness rather than, moral, rather, than simply be, rather than being moral agents needing forgiveness. If we misunderstand, if we don't see the reality of the fall, we will misunderstand the problem, and therefore we will not find or seek out a real remedy. We'll simply, every other remedy is simply a Band-Aid or a placebo. It will not get to the real issue. The solution to the problem we all face requires something far more powerful than anything the world has to offer. And thankfully, that's not the end of the story. That'd be pretty depressing if we ended there. There's much, much more, and that brings us to the third chapter, redemption. God's rescue plan. Brothers and sisters, hallelujah, God has not abandoned us, and his rescue plan is in effect. He began to lay out his rescue plan from the very early on, right after the fall, as he's even confronting Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, he declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to, to Satan. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Satan, the offspring of the woman, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That is acknowledged as the first prophecy of the coming Messiah, the rescuer that the rest of the Bible speaks about. All throughout the Old Testament, God, we, we see God rescuing his people, providing rescuers, and all of the times that God provides someone else to rescue, pointing to the ultimate rescuer, the king, the chief rescuer of all people. The ultimate rescue mission, the coming Messiah, the Redeemer. Jesus is that agent that God the Father sent to conduct the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. Because he doesn't simply save earthly lives, he saves souls and restores us to the way we were meant to be. You see, the solution isn't just getting a good example or somebody to give us pointers on how to live or tell us to just keep going, keep on trucking, it'll be okay. That's some kind of encouragement. We need to be transformed from the inside out. You know that, I know that. Because the problem is a heart problem. It goes to the very core of who we are. We need heart transplants. And the only one who's able to do something about that is, is God through Christ. With this story of redemption, Christ coming to rescue his people, helps us see that all of history is going somewhere. God is dealing with evil in the universe. He's not indifferent to the wrong that you experience or the wrong that you do. All of Scripture speaks of the Redeemer King who's come and will come again to make things right once again. Therefore, we can know that we've not been abandoned. We are not and never will be left alone. No matter how deeply alone that you feel, if you know Christ, you are never alone. He is there, speaking words of love and hope and encouragement and life. This tells us that we matter to God even in our fallenness. No matter how far you've fallen, You haven't fallen far enough for the Lord's arms to pull you out, for his grace to overcome any ugly sin that you've committed. We are not cosmic orphans seeking to scrap out some meaningless existence until we die and become food for worms. tells us that he loves us, he's pursuing us, that God, again, is dealing with evil. There is hope in the midst of the pain and brokenness of life. The supreme rescue story of the Bible helps us to grasp how the goodness and love of God can be believed in a world such as ours with its beauty and its ugliness, its delights and its dangers. helps us comprehend how we can find peace when we become acutely aware of our own moral status before a holy God who will not overlook wrongdoing, including my own. God has provided through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son what I, can't, what I need but cannot provide for myself. He lives the life that I should live but cannot, and died the death that I deserved in my place so that I might not face God's judgment if simply I avail myself of his work by faith, by grace through faith. And it also tells us, too, that we are meant to be part of God's restoration plan, working in it, not against it, to be agents of reconciliation and redemption, seeking to bring healing and wholeness as we live in the world, but not of it, following our elder brother and our Savior and Lord in his path. We're to stand up for truth and justice, to protect the weak from the abuses of the strong. We're to speak the truth in love. And then finally, I think I have a minute, really, Walt said, to do this. I'm going to steal a little more than a minute. Glorification. Everything will be as it should be. Revelation 21 and 22 reminds us of where all of history is indeed going. 
John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And all I saw, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for their former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. John, write these down. I want my children to know what their future is. Do you see that? There is hope. All of history is heading to a specific, in a specific direction, and one day... One day, all will be made right. Evil and sin will be no more. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's why Christians should be the most hopeful people on earth. Because for Christians, hope is not just some wishful thinking, something, oh, I, I hope I get this for Christmas. Hope for the believer is a sure thing that simply hasn't happened yet. It is absolutely sure because it's grounded in the faithfulness and the promises of a God who never changes, a God who himself is faithful, who is just, who is loving, who is good, who is sovereign. The implications of the king's return to complete his work and make all things new are huge. To begin with, the horizons of our lives are not simply the next paycheck or upcoming vacation. We have a true and sure hope that one day all all wrongs will be made right and we can live in the eternal perspective. There's more than I can see than there is here and now. And when things go wrong, I still have not lost the most important thing. When things go wrong, I do not need to lose all hope. And if I lose everything here on earth, I still have not lost the most important thing, my relationship with God and his people. And one day I will be with him forever in glory. See, when people lose the hope of eternity, of a better world beyond this, We're simply left with hedonism, living for pleasure, apathy and despair, nihilism where nothing really matters, or simply narcissism. But if we look at these four categories, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification, it's the basis for understanding the whole gospel. And it's the framework from which we can understand everything that faces us and hits us in this world, as as Walt is taking you through specific examples. It's the basis for the gospel, and I want to close with this. My two favorite summaries of the gospel, which are addressed in creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. Cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. You probably heard this before. This is from Jack Miller, the founder of, of World Harvest Mission and Sonship. Cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. But cheer up, God is more gracious. God's grace is greater than you ever imagined. And the second one, the gospel tells us it's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. There's acceptance for where you are as you are. But God loves you too much to let you stay there. He meets you where you are so he can take you to where you need to be. The challenge is not simply acknowledging these categories. It's living them out in our daily lives. Using them really as the grid from which we make sense of all of life. It's when we do that that we truly are set free by truth. For it is truth that sets us free. And that's really what we all crave. Real freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom from the the, the brokenness in this fallen world. We have hope. Let's stand in that. Pray with me, please. Father, we do praise you and thank you that in you and in through your word, we do have a grid from which to make sense of all of life. 
where everything fits, Lord, one way or another. So we can have hope. We can be encouraged. Even in the midst of the brokenness, Lord, you are restoring all things and one day will completely restore all things. May we stand in these truths for your glory and for our good so that we can, Lord, communicate effectively the gospel to those that are blinded by lies, that are walking down the wrong path, that desperately need your truth, that desperately need the freedom that only gospel brings. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.